opening and closing theme is by Midnight Syndicate. For more dark instrumental music like it, visit www.midnightsyndicate.com or find them on YouTube, Spotify, Apple, or Alexa. True crime stories are discussed in this podcast, which may contain graphic and disturbing content. Listener discretion is advised. Hey everyone, we have shirts for sale now, so go on to our website at www.freshlybrewednoir.com and use code FBN2023 for $5 off your purchase. We currently are selling in the U.S. and working on international sales. Thanks you guys for your support. Hey guys, welcome back to Freshly Brewed Noir. I'm Jennifer. And I'm Summer. And this is episode 50, Harold Shipman, a.k.a. Dr. Death. So we are going to discuss Harold Shipman, a.k.a. Dr. Death, which you just said. (laughs) He was a general practitioner from the United Kingdom who is estimated to have killed 250 of his patients, with the majority being older women, and he killed them with lethal injections of morphine or by prescribing high amounts of a medication. Oh, wow. Okay. I'm curious to know what the motive is for this, and it's scary to know that you know, this is a doctor who obviously you trust. trusted. Yeah. Yeah. It's scary to think that he's the only practitioner in the UK that's been convicted of doing something like this. Okay. So, so he was like a needle in a haystack. Let's hope so. So this is not to be confused with the Dr. Death podcast about Christopher Dunch, right? Right. So this isn't the same Dr. Death as the one that's out now about him, Christopher Dunch. That is the neurosurgeon who injured 33 of his patients. Some were maimed for life. One ended up quadriplegic and two of his patients actually did die. But there is a series out called Dr. Death. So I wanted to clear that up. We are not discussing Dunch. We will be discussing Harold Shipman, who actually murdered around 250 of his own patients. 218 of those murders were committed between 1975 and 1998. And since most of his murders can be confirmed through medical records and the fact that he would be the last person with the patient before they did die abruptly, he is considered one of the most prolific serial killers in modern history. For someone to have that high of a count of victims, it just makes you wonder, why are you a doctor, you know? And and why wasn't he caught sooner? That's a lot of people to die around you and your practice. Exactly. Someone doesn't find this fishy, like all of this guy's patients end up dying? Well, there are two people that do find it fishy, so we will go into that. Okay, so I guess we'll, we'll dive in. We'll dive in. Harold Frederick Shipman was born on January 14, 1946, in Nottingham. He was the second of three children to devout Methodist working-class parents. Growing up, he was athletic, and there was no stories of abuse that I could find, but Shipman was reportedly very close to his mother, who ended up dying of lung cancer when he was 17. During the later stages of her disease, Shipman witnessed his mother in extreme pain, which was relieved by a doctor who would come by to give her morphine at home. His mother's last days would eerily seem to influence his MO later as a practitioner. Oh, Mm -hmm. so right off the bat, I'm seeing where this connection is. Yeah, I figured you would (laughs) see that right away. Yeah. I wonder if he thinks he's doing people a favor or if this is him reliving some sort of trauma. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I want you to let me know as we go through this what you think about it, okay? All right. Shipman got married at the age of 20 and would have four children with his wife. And her name was Primrose, which reminds me of, of course, 
Hunger Games. Yeah, it's such a pretty name. He studied medicine at Leeds School of Medicine and graduated from the University of Leeds in 1970. He started working at an infirmary after graduation. In 1974, he took his first general practitioner position at Abraham Ormerod Medical Center in Todmorden, West Yorkshire, England. Okay. I had to listen to pronunciations because <laughs> it looks like Todd Morden. It does. But when I listened to people pronounce it online, the person that actually had a British accent, he pronounced it more Todmorden. Okay. Is that you speaking your British accent? It could be. <laughs> I don't... I, or it could be the, the word... <laughs> The word forces the British accent out, maybe. Why don't you try it? Todmorden. I can't do accents. You know that. I just sound like a valley girl. (laughs) (laughs) Which should be me, being from California. I think it doesn't seem right. I know. The next year, Shipman got caught forging prescriptions for an opioid pain medication, commonly known as Demerol. He admitted that it was for his own use and that he had been abusing it. So he basically got a slap on the wrist for this with no criminal history. And they kind of looked at it as, okay, he's owning up to it. And he received a small fine and attended a drug rehabilitation clinic very briefly, it said. Okay. So he's abusing the drugs there, the prescriptions. Mm -hmm. But it's thought that he was killing patients at this time as well. One being Edith Roberts, who died in 1975 during Shipman's heavy addiction. So Edith was only 67 years old, and it appeared that she peacefully passed away from cardiac arrest, sitting up in bed with her book still in her hand. We'll talk about that later because there's a long list of victims that pass away in the upright position, like sitting up. So it seems like maybe he was administering a drug when they were seemingly fine. And this is when they're in his care? Right, because he would do, he could do house calls. They could be coming to a medical center and he would be treating him there. There's definitely a connection with women between the ages of like mid to late 40s all the way into their 90s where they would be otherwise healthy and they would die in a sitting up position, fully clothed, where they hadn't really complained of anything previously. But it was after he had been there to treat them, to see them, whether it's a routine visit or what. But mainly women, huh? Yes, mainly women. I think he only killed one male, actually. His youngest victim was four, and we'll talk about that at one point. And his oldest victim was 93. So there was a wide range of victim ages, but the majority of the People he killed were women, late 40s to 80s, and some into their 90s. Okay. I'm curious why, because typically there's some sort of like sexual aspect to it, but it doesn't seem like there is in this case. No, there doesn't seem to be any sexual aspect to it at all. Like all the women were fully clothed. They were not sexually assaulted. Most of them seem to be healthy women going for either a routine checkup or maybe they had a cold or were following up about something. So he possibly has like a God complex. That is what some people think. So we'll definitely talk about that. Okay. Shipman claimed that his victims had suffered from health conditions, but this was discovered to be untrue later on. In 1977, he became a general practitioner at Donnybrook Medical Center in Hyde, Greater Manchester, England. He worked there throughout the 80s, and this is where it is believed he perfected his M.O. by giving patients lethal doses of diamorphine, which was heroin. Um, legal heroin? Prescription heroin, basically, yes. 
Wow. So diamorphine is usually used in people's last stages of a terminal disease. They will prescribe morphine in those months or weeks that you're in tremendous pain. I see. Like my grandfather, he he lived into his 90s, but he had uh, blood cancer. That's what killed him. And the hospice workers would give him morphine to help subdue the pain. Is it the same thing as heroin, essentially? Basically, just cleaned up a little bit. Okay. And highly addictive. Yes, highly addictive. But since it is the last stages of life, you're not worried about an addiction. You just want that person to pass peacefully. But people who are addicted to it and that are in their younger years, they're just doing it to feel... Right, feel that high... I see. Okay. Well, I've learned something. I've learned many things. (laughs) Then in 1998, some became suspicious of Shipman due to the high death rate of his patients and actually went to the coroner, John Pollard, about it. And it was actually the cremation forms that raised concern. And it was a doctor, Dr. Linda Reynolds. She noticed the high number of cremation forms that he needed co-signed because I guess you had to have another doctor co-sign a cremation form. She was the one that reported it because she was like, no, this seems strange. Here's Dr. Shipman again with me co-signing another one. Mm, So she's noticing like the high increase of numbers. Of death rates, right. And she has a bad feeling about it. She thinks it needs to be looked into. So she does report it. Also, a taxi driver came forward and said that he thought Shipman was killing his patients because he had driven 21 women to the center where Shipman worked. And they were perfectly healthy, he said, and they had all died. The taxi driver? The taxi driver reported it and said, I have driven 21 women to this medical center to see this doctor, and they have all died. That's crazy how he can remember all of the people he's driven, but... Well, I I think if you, like, drive women for their appointments, he probably gained a rapport with them. And so, you know, he's driving, you know, Mrs. Jones in to see the doctor, and she never comes out because she died there. And, And that's strange, but then you drive another woman to the doctor, and she doesn't come out, she dies too. Yeah. And then another, and it's 21, that is going to make you suspicious. Like, they looked healthy when they were in my taxi. What is this about? Yeah, and if these are repeat customers. Yeah, and um, he's not driving. It's not like he's driving them to the ER because they're having cardiac arrest. He's just driving them to a normal doctor appointment. Well, I can see how it would definitely raise some flags. But even with all of these facts from credible witnesses, investigators stated that they were unable to find sufficient evidence and close the investigation. Maybe do you think it was because there were no, like, wounds on the body? It wasn't, like, just a crime scene? No, we'll talk about it a little later, but we can touch on it now. So the investigators that were assigned to this case were not the best investigators. And it's kind of like they botched the investigation, didn't really look into the things they should have, and just closed the case. Or do you think it was... Because they just assumed this guy is a surgeon or he's a, he's a doctor. Like, but should you assume that as an investigator? You should not. You should not, right. So I think they were, well, it does later state that they were very bad investigators. Well, hopefully they're not still investigators. Or they didn't, I would like, think not. remain in that position after that. So Shipman killed three more people after the investigation was closed. Kathleen Grundy. Oh, this is the doctor who reported him. The one who was, like, co-signing? Yeah, Dr. Linda Reynolds. And she stopped co-signing. She was like, hold on. Let me go report this. This does not seem right. Sounds like they did what they were supposed to do. Like That doctor did. Yeah, Dr. Reynolds did. 
Yeah, and then you have like the taxi driver who yeah. found the suspicions and he reported it too. So. Yep, but still nothing was done. The investigation was closed and Shipman killed three more women. In the same of- manner. Yep. If they had just spoken to the family members, they would have realized that many of his patients were actually healthy. And if they had looked into his background, they would have discovered his drug abuse at the previous medical center, as well as history of forging documents. And then maybe they would have looked into death certificates and spoken to the families to confirm the information on them. If they had just done a few things, they would have stopped him. But they were like, nah, unnecessary. Yeah, why? Right. So do they think he forged uh, death certificates? He did. He absolutely forged them. Yes. Manner of death, he would write cardiac arrest. But like when he induces them or like injects them with that drug, isn't that what that causes? Cardiac arrest? Right. But he just said they would die of old age or they died of cardiac arrest or pre-existing conditions. He would write this on the death certificate. Oh, so he would change it. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, he wasn't writing, oh yeah, they died of diamorphine that I injected them with. He was saying, oh, made it look like natural causes or older age or something or pre-existing conditions, which weren't there in many cases. For the most part, these people were healthy. But if he, so if he was found to be doing this stuff at that time, or was is this something that was found out later on? This was later on. If they had done a proper investigation, these things would have popped up, but they never did that. Why did they keep this doctor employed if he was doing this stuff? Well, so he ends up opening his own practice in 1993. So there wouldn't be anybody that could potentially look into things he was writing. Ah, okay. So he set it up so that there was no way he was going to get caught or questioned. Exactly. And he was even a respected member of the community being interviewed in 1982 on a television program called World in Action, where he talked about caring for patients with mental illness in the community. And there's an article from Tamicide Advertiser. There's actually a video of him. They interview him about like his work and he's like very proud of it, talking about how you should care for people. And one of the things he says, um, and this is from that video, and I'll put a link to it. And he was interviewed at his desk at Donnybrook House. This was when he was still in the group practice in Hyde. And he talked enthusiastically about a new type of treatment for the mentally ill. The footage, they actually rediscovered it. And this was 20 years later. It aired again in 2000. And this was actually after his conviction that they aired it. He was talking about, that's quote, if you can stay in the community and receive your treatment in the community, and if you have your family around you and your friends, then this all adds to the speed of the recovery from the illness, end quote. So he was talking about caring for patients, getting them healthy, and how to advocate for people with mental illness while he was killing literally hundreds of people. This is another double life mm-hmm. kind of scenario. Yep. I mean, he must know that he's putting on this act. I don't know if he did. I think he either thought he was doing good or he got obsessed with watching women die because of the trauma of maybe watching his mother die. And he just wanted to keep reliving that. It's weird to me. I don't understand it. There might be something to that, though. Maybe. So Shipman was now at his new practice, able to falsify records of his patients, and nobody was watching over him at this practice. There's no accountability, so he can do it. He's his own boss. Exactly. He's his own boss, so nobody's going to check in on things. 
he was able to go undetected until Kathleen Grundy, his last victim, who was a former mayor of Hyde, she was found dead at her home on June 24, 1998. Shipman was the last person to see her alive and was the doctor to sign her death certificate, stating that it was old age that caused her death. The problem was that Kathleen was healthy and her sudden death didn't sit well with her daughter, Angela Woodruff. Still, Shipman managed to convince her daughter that no autopsy was needed. It was actually an altered will that left everything to Shipman and excluded Kathleen's daughter and grandchildren that was brought to the police's attention. Yeah, that's really suspicious. Yeah, so in her will, basically everything she had that should have gone to the daughter and the grandchildren was now left to Shipman, her doctor. The police were I mean, like, how uh, is that not telling? I mean, it's very telling. I mean, how did, did he not think this was going to get him caught? Oh, well, and some people talk about, did he want to get caught? Did he want to stop killing? And so he made it so obvious that he would get caught. But then some people thought, no, he just wanted to retire. And that was a good chunk of money. And he could be done. And he could just go retire now. Which I, I think is, yeah, more selfish. I think that's more realistic. I don't think he cared that he was hurting people. I don't think he wanted to stop. He just wanted to get a nice chunk of money to retire. That sounds more believable. I think so. So they exhumed Kathleen's body and discovered traces of diamorphine. And as we talked about before, this drug is normally prescribed to patients with terminal illnesses, but Kathleen was very healthy. But Shipman had gone back into her records and added that she was an addict, even writing comments about how he knew she was using. But it was later discovered that those entries were made after she had died. Huh. So he, he made it seem like she was a, a drug addict. I mean, her daughter was like, no, that's, that's <laughs> not, not the truth. <laughs> not the truth at all. I mean, how did he not think people were going to go back and look at these things? I guess he just got to the point where he thought, well, nobody's going to suspect. He'd been getting away with it for so long. He had killed over 200 people. At this point, he'd already killed yes, over 200 people? Yes, he'd already killed. She's probably around his 250th victim. So he's probably thinking... He's cocky. Yeah. How can you not be after... Right. Nobody has caught you that entire time. Shipman was arrested on September 7th, 1998, and an inquiry into his patient's deaths began, and it was called the Shipman Inquiry. It took two years. Shipman's patients had a death rate of almost 10 times that of neighboring general practices. His patients also seemed to have similarities of passing sitting up, usually in the afternoon, and after a visit from Shipman while they were at home alone. It was discovered that, after killing a patient, Shipman would go back into their records and alter the notes to show untrue pre-existing conditions that appeared to explain the sudden death, like he had done with Kathleen Grundy. Another patient, 73-year-old Winifred Meller, was given a fake history of heart disease, but it was noticed that Shipman added this note just minutes after her murder. Shipman would also alter the cremation certificates of his victims and, in some cases, would claim family members were aware of their loved one's pre-existing condition or that the death had been expected. Fifteen cases were investigated. All of them had received lethal doses of diamorphine, had falsified medical records indicating they were in poor health, and he had signed their death certificates. Shipman went to trial, and on January 31st of 2000, he was found guilty on 15 counts of murder and sentenced to life imprisonment with a whole life order. And in England and Wales, prisoners can get out early. 
once part of their sentence is served, but a whole life order is imposed in the case of aggravated murder when the offenses are exceptionally high. So this means there was no chance for parole for Shipman, and he would most likely die in prison unless granted like a compassionate release or pardon by a monarch, which would not most likely happen. All right. So the 15 women he killed by lethal injection of diamorphine between 1995 and 1998 were Mary West, Bianca Pomfret, Joan Malia, Nora Natal, Pamela Hillier, Maureen Ward, Winifred Meller, Kathleen Grundy, Irene Turner, Lizzie Adams, Jean Lilly, Ivy Lomas, Muriel Grimshaw, Marie Quinn, and Kathleen Wagstaff. And that is just between 95 and 98. That's only three years yes. of when he was killing. They just did an inquiry into only 15. But he really was killing for about, what, 20 years, right? He started killing in the 70s. So he killed for over two decades. Okay, over two decades. Yeah, like two and a half decades, it's estimated. But they do know who all of his victims are, which is a rare thing in these kind of cases. Like, yeah. You don't know all of the victims. Right. And so they're able to say that he's the most prolific in modern history because they do have those medical records and they can tie him to between 215 and 250 murders. Does he seem remorseful at all? Does he seem like he cares? I don't think so. And even in the interview, this reporter, this is after he is being charged with the murder of these 15 women, a reporter tries to go and interview him and he's almost calm about it and says, well, my lawyer tells me to just stay here so you can get your picture, but then I have to go. I have, I have things to do. It goes into his practice. It just seems very calm and cocky to me. Yeah. Like Like, you're on trial for killing people and you're just like, take your picture, but I got to go in. He probably doesn't think he's going to get caught. He's probably probably just like, you know, I've gotten away with it for so long and yeah. There's no way you guys can, I, like, he's like, I've covered my tracks as best as I can. Which he did for many years. Yeah, that's the thing. They, they do get away with it for a long time. And so it, obviously it's worked. Yeah. But then they slip up. Many reports say his youngest victim was Peter Lewis, who was 41 and had terminal cancer. But his youngest victim was actually a child, four-year-old Susie Garfit. Susie was quadriplegic and had cerebral palsy. She had been sick with pneumonia and was being cared for by Shipman. He murdered Susie while her mother was out of the room getting a cup of tea. Oh my God. Her mom went to get a cup of tea. And then when she went back in, her daughter was dead. And she confirms that like, she did not ask Shipman to murder her child or to speed along the process of her death or anything like that. Because even though she was unwell, she didn't want her to die. And so... It was made very clear that this is another murder. She did not ask anybody to kill her daughter. He murdered her daughter. Yeah. So did he think he was doing her a favor? Yeah. Like, I think in his head, he feels like he's helping them maybe. But again, that's the God complex because it's not your right to take somebody's life. So exactly. you think you're doing somebody a favor, but can't yeah. just do you that. Don't, you can't take someone's life into your own hands. That's not the role. You're supposed to be helping. So I think there was definitely a God complex and also some, maybe some sort of reliving that trauma of his mother passing. Yeah. It gave him some kind of feeling for him to keep doing it. Shipman spent less than four years in prison though, because he died on January 13th of 2004 when he took his own life and hanged himself from the window bars in his cell with bedsheets. Wow. He was 57. 
His body was released to his family after a short post-mortem examination was completed. So many of his victims' families didn't even get the conviction of Shipman for their loved ones' murders. Some of those families said that they felt cheated by his death because they would never have the possibility of answers as to why he committed those murders or even a confession. In an interview with BBC News in 2004, Jane Ashton Hibbert, whose 81-year-old grandmother, Hilda Hibbert, was murdered by Shipman, said that she believed Shipman took the easy way out and said that she would not be mourning his loss. In the interview, she talks about how some families were just finding out about their relatives having been murdered by Shipman a year or so before his suicide, so they had essentially just begun their life sentence of grieving for their loved ones, and Shipman only served about four years of his sentence. She said, quote, I am a bit shocked, but I suppose really you could say I was angry he had chosen the easy way out instead of admitting his guilt and showing some compassion to his victims, end quote. Hilda Hibbert was an inspirational woman who was known throughout Hyde for her love of life. That's because Mrs. Hibbert was a woman who cared passionately for her town and the people she met during her 81 years. The great-grandmother was lauded as a local history author and was a regular face at Warneth House. When Mrs. Hibbert wasn't campaigning for local rights, she was actively engrossed in contributing to the Hyde War Memorial Trust. Jane Ashton Hibbert fondly recalls how it wasn't just people of her own age who loved her grandmother. She could also mix it with the youngsters, which I thought was cute. She just sounds like an amazing person, and they never got a conviction for her murder, as well as hundreds of others. And they never will now. Yeah, he's he's taken the easy way out, and I think that's what he wanted to do. It's selfish. That's who he was. Yeah. Do you think that he felt bad and he couldn't live with no. his crimes? Or oh, do you no. think he just, okay. I don't think he did that because he felt bad. A couple things that were said about him taking his own life. And one of them was that his wife wouldn't get his pension if he lived past 60. And so some people believe that he killed himself so that way his wife and kids would be provided for instead of like living his life in jail and then they would lose his pension money after he turned 60. There may be some truth to that. I think it was a combination of him being maybe selfish. Like, I don't want to live in jail. This isn't the life I want. I'm going to take my own life and so I don't have to serve my time. And then the bonus for him would be that his family gets his pension. Yeah, so it's all selfish. It's all selfish reasons, yep. Yeah, there's no part of him that feels bad for what he did. I can't imagine after killing 250 people that he would have any remorse or feel bad. That's just my opinion, though. Yeah, I guess we go back to the God complex, and it's like, do you think you're helping these people who are supposedly in pain? Yeah. There's been where a nurse or a doctor has provided lethal injection to people suffering who have either asked for it or... Maybe they haven't, but these people were not asking to die. The majority of his patients were healthy. I mean, some of them were in their 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s. You're not so old that you're at a point where somebody would think you would want to be not here. Yeah. He just liked killing people. I really do think he liked it. Maybe that was um, another sort of addiction for him. Yeah. I think he was addicted to... The feeling of killing Mm -hmm. someone. Yes. Because he had an addictive personality, obviously. Yeah. If he was clean, he probably found a way to transfer that addiction to some something else, and that was probably killing. Yeah. To me, that makes the most sense. There's no clear motive, even though we've talked about it. We really will never know why Shipman killed hundreds of his patients. 
but it is thought that the trauma of his mother's death led him to treat elderly women and play God with their lives. Shipman was able to get away with his crimes for a long time, mostly because he ran his own practice, so there wasn't any oversight. He wrote excessive prescriptions and then would keep the remaining diamorphine when his patients would die. So altering his patients' records helped him hide his crimes, as did having other doctors co-sign cremation certificates because they were not required to view the body or talk to the family. The inquiry into Shipman caused changes to the procedures of the police force's investigations of practitioners, as well as to the coroner's and death registration practices and the cremation process, so that it will never be possible for another practitioner to get away with something so horrific for so long. Yeah, so it sounds like they put some things in place so that if things start to look suspicious again... It can never get this bad, exactly. So obviously no process is ever going to be 100% But they're taking steps. Yes, in multiple areas. So the police force and their investigations, also cremation process and like who needs to sign. You know, before they just didn't even need to look at the body, didn't even need to talk to the family. But now there's checks and balances where things are confirmed. If your family member dies and on their death certificate, it's written that they had this terminal illness or pre-existing condition, but you're never asked about that, you never see it, then you can see how he can get away with this for a long time. Yeah. Now that people can review it and... Nobody could do it for this long. Right. Yeah. Absolutely not. Makes sense to me. But that's so crazy, Isn't that crazy? It's somebody you trust. Like, you go to your doctor for help, and sometimes it's a stranger at a medical center. You're putting your life in their hands. One of the things they say is, you know, the Hippocratic Oath, they're not going to do any harm. But he was basically, that's the one thing he was trying to do was harm people. It's like that's that was his sole reason for becoming a doctor. Yeah, was... because he, he did. He started going to medical school two years after his mom died. It's just always scary to me when these people are the people who you're supposed to be able to trust yeah. with your life. I know. It's scary. But then, yeah, they end up either killing you or traumatizing you for the rest of your life. And that's not normal. I mean, the majority of doctors and nurses out there are wonderful people who want to help. But, but that I know, small chance. I know. You get you that get one that. bad doctor and that's scary. But you said he didn't kill all of his patients. So I wonder what was the difference? Like what was the deciding factor? Was it just that if they were women and that was it? So there was some obsession with women of a certain age. His mom was in her 40s when she died. There was a big range. Obviously, his youngest victim was four years old. And then his oldest was 93. And he has one male that he killed. But the majority of his women were in this age group around his mother's. There was definitely something he got obsessed with, something related to his mother's death. After seeing like your mom go through something and if her pain was relieved during those last moments, you would think he would want to do good by helping, but not taking the lives of healthy people. It doesn't make sense to me. Yeah, I don't get it, but I do see the connection. I don't know what the thought process is, but it's some unhealthy attachment to that time. Yeah. The original Dr. Death, Carol Shipman. An awful human. Yeah. Crazy one. Most prolific in the in, UK. In, yeah. and Well, no, in the world. Modern history. In the world. In the world. Because they can actually track his murders through medical records, which there are a lot of serial killers up in the you know hundreds throughout the world. But as far as victim counts that they can confirm, they can confirm, I think it's 215 to 250 of his victims. So that makes him the most prolific in the world of, in modern history. 
Yeah, and I had never actually heard of this guy, so glad you covered him. We try to bring the lesser known. That we do. That's our, <laughs> that's our goal. Yes. Hopefully we're providing that, I hope. I think so. Then I think our next episode is going to be Peter Scully, and he's supposed to be really oh, awful. That's little, who you're covering? Yeah, I'm a little scared to hesitant, but you know, we'll deep dive into that one. I think my next one is the one my friend Kristen from California recommended. Oh, yeah. So, and the Plasterville. string of like strange deaths. Yes. Yeah, that one's interesting. You're finally covering a California case. <laughs> <laughs> I know I've probably covered a California case before. No, I feel like I've covered majority of the California cases. You, you definitely cases. have covered the majority of them. Absolutely. And I've covered the majority of Georgia cases, too. I've noticed that. That's true. So we've covered each other's home states, mostly. How did we work that it's out? It's because we're, we're always yin and yang. We're always balancing each other out. I guess you're right. Even though we're both always tired. But in other ways, we balance each other out. This is true. Energy level, same page. <laughs> That's why we're so addicted to caffeine. <laughs> and part of me wants to see if I can cover the Abby Choi case that I was telling you about that happened yeah. in, I think, Hong Kong, I believe. The newer one, right? Yeah, it's a newer case. So, you know, I'm a little hesitant just because it's still ongoing and there are so many things they're finding out, but it's yeah. really just a sad, sad case. I don't know if it's one that many people are aware of, so I'd be interested in possibly covering it, maybe when we get more information. Okay. Well, anything else? You should follow us on our socials, on Instagram, Twitter, YouTube, Facebook. Am I missing any? No, I think you got them all. Okay, at Freshly Brewed Noir. And if you have any show ideas, feel free to send us an email at freshlybrewednoir at gmail.com. Mm -hmm. If you can rate us and uh, review us on Apple or Spotify, we'd appreciate, appreciate it. it. Please yes. do. We will send you a sticker. How about that? <laughs> that? That's enticing. <laughs> but they have to give us their information to get a sticker, right? Yes. Right. So if you rate us and you want us to send you one of our Freshly Brewed Noir stickers, email us your mailing address. And then screenshot us the review. Yes. And we won't spam you. We have nothing to send out at this time. <laughs> we don't. <laughs> so until next time. Stay caffeinated. Get hobbies. And don't murder people. Bye. Bye.